Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. This week, we are examining the options and outlook for investors seeking to understand how to invest at a time of higher interest rates. Higher interest rates tend to mean certain types of equities outperform. But for how long and what does diversification look like in such a world? Joining me today to discuss the topic are... Paul Craig, Portfolio Manager at Quilter, Stephen Bell, Chief Economist at BMO Global Asset Management, and Christopher Rossbach, Chief Investment Officer at Jay Stern & Co. Thank you all for joining me today. Paul, if we, if we start with you, given the unusual nature of the recession and the subsequent recovery, how confident can we be that asset prices will continue to react in future as they might have done at similar points in economic and market cycles of the past? Thanks, David. Yes, and it's an interesting question, given that I certainly haven't lived through a pandemic before. And you're right in saying that it's certainly been an unusual recession. It was forced upon us by the government, and now we have a forced recovery. And clearly, a bit like that scene in Jurassic World, it's easy to turn the power off. It's a little more complicated switching that power back on again. Where can we have confidence in things getting back to normal? I guess, well, the thing that hasn't been removed from the equation are human beings. Human beings react in certain ways. And, you know, we've seen them probably too much inductive reasoning during the crisis and not enough deductive reasoning. And I think going forward, you know, the reason why we think we're likely to get back to a degree of normality, but even normal is weird, um, is people will start to focus on the fundamentals. I think that's what was somewhat missing during the first part of the recovery, when, when money was plentiful and interest rates were practically zero, you know, people probably did a lot of foolish things. And now that the punch bowl is being removed and interest rates are rising, um, you know, clearly there's you know, ever more importance to focus on good quality companies that are able to sustain sort of revenue generation and margins going forward. And I think the, 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 for investors, it's not just that interest rates are rising. Investors also have that added complication of anticipating what the market thinks interest rates are doing. So it's all very well. You can, you can get your forecast right and not actually make any money from it because everyone else has a different view. So, you know, a prime question now could be, we all know interest rates are rising, but by how much and when? And is the market expecting more or less than likely to be delivered. Thank because you. depending um, on that outcome will obviously impact equity markets. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a point around timing and scale that we'll be coming to uh, later on. Um, Christopher, I guess uh, one of the one of the challenges is in in, in a world with so much uh, disruption anyway in, in terms of technology and aging populations and debt levels, and then you layer on um, the pandemic. And the recovery from that, how do we think about what, what quality is, particularly in, in an equity market? And is it the same thing as it was in the past? And do we react in the same way as we might have done in the past? Well, I think it is. I echo the fact that a pandemic, and we have not had many in the record, is one of the sharpest uh, shocks that is possible to imagine. And so as uh, going into it creates a shock coming out of it is as uh, sharp as well. 
Um, I think that it's very important in this question of how asset prices will react to uh, take a long-term perspective, however, and to realize uh, that um, uh, the global economy is resilient, um, markets are resilient, and companies uh, are resilient. And that's, I think, what we're seeing uh, in terms of uh, what companies are reporting uh, and uh, in terms of what is going on in the real economy. So uh, I think that's the basic perspective that we have to maintain here. Uh, and as uh, we can have seen, one of the impacts of uh, the support that's been given by governments uh, during the pandemic uh, is that savings levels have increased very dramatically for people. So people's balance sheets are strong. There's a lot of pent up demand for consumption, some of which has been released over the last year as people have been able to start spending again. But there's a lot of parts of the economy uh, where that's not the case. And so we've seen very robust demand um, uh, in uh, different countries. We've seen it in the United States and in Europe, but we've also seen it in China, uh, where the measures that are taken are, uh, if anything, more robust uh, than they've been taken now. So I think there's a lot of reason to believe that the underlying fundamentals of demand are still in place. And I think if you look at what quality means, uh, it very much means uh, businesses that can help to drive the global economy. It's companies that have strong and sustainable competitive positions. It's companies that are in good and growing markets for the different reasons uh, that you've mentioned and technology and innovation. It means having managements that are aligned and it means having balance sheets that are so strong that they can weather any kind of adversity of which the pandemic is one of the greatest examples. So I think those have endured. And if they have the pricing power to offset the inflation that we're now seeing, if they have the innovation to be able to uh, grow their volumes, uh, and not just their prices, and if they have the scale to be able to absorb uh, the price increases that see in terms of their inputs, I think companies are very well positioned. And so if we're talking about equities, I think there's a lot of confidence to be able to say that, yes, they will react in the way that they have in the past. Thank you for that. Stephen, as, a, as an economist, as a, as a macro guy, generally you'll be, uh, be building models and, and creating uh, forecasts, etc. Two parts to the question, really, how, how much can do you have to adjust for it being different this time when you're putting together those models and, and forecasts? And secondly, to, to Paul's point, how, how do you think about um, the how to make money if your models and forecasts are, are correct? Is that different at this time as well? Well, there's no doubt. I used to spend a lot of time doing econometrics, and now I'm doing coronametrics. At least I was doing I've never had an investment strategy so dominated or, do or influenced at all by vaccine trial publications as happened in early November last year. So it is different. There are areas, though, you know, at the end of the day, the true value of an equity is its future earnings uh, discounted back to present value. And the most remark one of the many remarkable things is that the discount rate, the real interest rate, for companies whose earnings rise in line with inflation has been very negative. And that has boosted growth stocks, many of which have had features that benefited from the pandemic, of which most notably, you know, internet based or tech stocks. So there have been curious features. As we see a rising interest rate environment, defensive stocks, uh, which might normally benefit are suffering from higher interest rates. You know, the, the world is difficult. In addition, a balanced portfolio with bonds and equities, that does well when there's geopolitical risks, 
or a risk of recession. It doesn't do well with inflation because both equities and bonds tend to fall. So there are lots of things to try and work out. Uncertainty, uh, pandemic, that sort of thing. You know, these are all novel phenomenon. So we've generally been running lower risk positions and with increased volatility, it turns out that lower risk may be normal volatility when it comes to measuring market movements. So I think that you just have to deploy your toolkit, uh, as has been said, to value markets and judge monetary policy and just recognize that uh, the environment is uh, is quite significantly different from normal. Thank you for that. Stephen, we'll, we'll stick with you uh, for the start of the, the next question, although it's, it's something that Paul referenced earlier. Um, we, we, sort of, we know interest rates are, are going to go up. We know monetary policy is going to tighten. How is there a risk that policymakers make an error and either don't tighten enough or probably more likely tighten too much or too quickly? And how can one think about that as, as, as an in, investor? I think there's a serious risk of a <clears throat> policy error of which the greatest risk is in the United States. And this isn't something that I've felt in the last couple of weeks. This is something I've felt for some time. And the reason is that the emergency in macroeconomic terms was largely over in the United States uh, last summer, last autumn. And the Federal Reserve, who'd kept monetary policy at emergency levels, quite rightly had put them there, should have started tightening much, much earlier. And I have to fear that the reappointment of the chairman had something to do with it. Almost as he walked out of the White White House with his reappointment paper in his hand, metaphorically, they fed turned a little bit more hawkish. And the inflation prospect that they had was certainly sufficient to justify hikes. The employment market, a little bit complicated, more complicated because of understanding the COVID effect, would have justified a rate hike more towards normal. And we're only just getting the talk. And the way I look at it is that the it's like driving a car where you're going very fast, approaching a bend in the road. You're supposed to take your foot off the accelerator and tap on the brakes. The Fed have kept their foot to the floor. All they've done is announced they're going to stop accelerating by QE purchases earlier than planned and will hike rates in March. Well, I'm sorry, moving rates in that baby step way is just far, far too little. Fortunately for the United States, they're lucky that mortgage rates are long-dated securities, and they've risen by, well, one percentage point, which is quite a big tightening independently. It's just the talk that's done it and the expectations. The market actually prices an inverted yield curve where longer-term rates are lower than shorter-term rates next year, and that normally presages a recession. So the bond market is pricing in recessionary pressures next year the equity market is thinking that earnings are going to continue growing significantly. It's a, it's a conundrum that has to be resolved one way. And I think you, you get a recession, if you're a central banker, by tightening too late, too much too late. And I think that risk has risen quite markedly in the United States. There's less risk in Europe, actually less risk in the UK probably, and almost no risk in Japan. So it really does significantly change the relative outlook for the United States economy. Thank you for that. Um, Christopher, as CIO, you, you've got to look across the, the asset classes. It, when you're putting portfolios together, do you think about this 
potential for a policy risk, whether that's, as Stephen seems to be alluding to, um, rates rising too, too late or too little, or, or indeed they, they rising too, too much. Well, we're very much focused on our equity portfolios as a core way of uh, in preserving and increasing the value of assets over the long term. And I think that in an, in particular, that has been proven over time, but in particular in an inflationary environment, I think equities are the key asset class uh, that um, allows that. And so uh, that is also what we're very much focused on as a firm. Um, I think we have to remember what is driving these inflationary pressures. And so I think some of it is the basic need for investment and the capacity constraints that we're seeing. Uh, it seems to me that we have had uh, globalization, we're in the middle of digitalization, and we now have a very significant need for capital investment. I think the first two, globalization and digitalization, are basically deflationary. I think investment uh, that we need is now more inflationary. And I think a lot of the bottlenecks that we're seeing that are causing the inflation would have happened anyway uh, and uh, were postponed by the pandemic and are now with us um, uh, with even greater vengeance uh, as a result of um, uh, this sharp move that we've had. But we have to remember that this is happening for good reasons because there is um, economic growth and there is a need for investment that generates positive returns. So I'm not so concerned about um, uh, the uh, underlying inflation for which I see a lot of uh, need um, uh, in terms of uh, the full employment that we're seeing in terms of uh, wages um, uh, picking up in sensible ways um, uh, and then being passed on. I think we were worried about deflation. Uh, for many years uh, following the global financial crisis. And so that we're now looking at the kind of sustained inflation, but uh, the long-term expected inflation is still around 2%. Uh, so it's very, very moderate. Uh, so I think what we are looking at is a question of this transition from the support that was necessary uh, during the pandemic and um, following the global financial crisis and to what the new paradigm is going to be. But I think that the new normal is going to be a lot more like the good old days. Uh, I think we're much more at the beginning of a normal cycle. I think that the tightening that we're seeing in this, uh, uh, this era of central banks uh, is a normal step in the right direction. I think it's going to be very data-driven, as it has been. Um, uh, over the last 20 years in the US and elsewhere. There's a lot of incentives for central banks not to make policy errors with the geopolitical issues and the elections that are coming up next year. Uh, and so I think that um, for all of those reasons, I think progressing uh, cautiously as they have uh, is the right thing. I also think there's no evidence that central banks have lost control of monetary policy. Um, uh, real rates are still zero, even if nominal rates are now in the progress of increasing to something that approaches um, more normal, but the absolute levels are still very low. Uh, and so uh, also from that perspective, I think uh, the idea that somehow inflation would be entrenched when the high numbers are a result of the bottlenecks and not of underlying reasons, and the central banks can influence um, interest rates and markets um, through their statements with no evidence that they've lost control, I think says, yes, of course, there's always a, a risk of policy error, um, but I don't think it's part of our central scenario. Thank you. Um, Paul, in your role at Quilter, I'm, I'm sure you have you have clients who are very, very uh, concerned right now about um, about higher inflation and higher interest rates and what that means for their their lives. Um, and then we've got, you know, over there, the, the central bankers who, who make these uh, decisions. If the central bankers get it wrong, is that something that, that you have to factor in either with, with portfolio construction? 
Um, well, I mean, the central bankers can can influence the short end of the yield curve, but they can't really influence the larger, you know, the longer end. I think with, I mean, what's interesting is we never really saw a full, you know, rate hike cycle post the financial crisis. So I guess there wasn't much to cut. How far they will go this time, only time will tell. I think the difficulty that central banks have um, is that, you know, they know what influence interest rates may have on the direct economy, but there's less knowledge in terms of the, the the impact of quantitative easing. It's very hard to sort of gauge how much influence that's having on the global economy. And, and the Fed's been you know, the first to point that out. The other thing as well, going into the pandemic, we had coordinated easing of you know monetary policy, whereas it's very much unsynchronized. Now, I guess the, the luxury I have is we're multi-asset, multi-manager. So, you know, we can play the various geographical regions or monetary policies to try and sort of combat some of the risk that we're seeing in markets. With regard to sort of central bank risks, I guess there is a, you know, as Stephen's pointed out, the Fed could well have, you know, started cutting back on policy support last year. The economy was sort of growing very strongly and it's been somewhat behind the curve. It was probably more concerned about sort of sticking to its transitory word scheme than, than actually getting policy correct. But in terms of, will it make a mistake? It might over might over egg it, but, you know, we've got bond markets that are likely to put them in their place. I think with regard to the longer term, what we're looking at is that, you know, in, we're, we're expecting inflation to sort of moderate. Um, it'll either moderate because the Fed's increased interest rates too much and it snuffs out any economic recovery, or that you know inflation itself is self-defeating, that people start to substitute those items um, that have gone up quite a lot in price. And we've seen that to some degree already in terms of you know, a lot of the strength in Q4 GDP was inventory building, companies doubling down because of the supply constraints they've seen, but also in anticipation of future demand. Well, if we start to see a reopening, a proper reopening of the economy, perhaps you know, people have enough stuff that they've already bought and they start then spending on services. Whether that service inflation will sort of comp, you know, make up for that reduction in inflation within product, we'll just have to wait and see. But like I say, I think, would we expect, you know, all being that tensions in Russia and Ukraine sort of dissipate, would we expect to see the oil price rise as significantly again, used car prices, new car prices, food prices, I think, you know, COVID's clearly been, you know, instrumental in a lot of the disruption that we've seen. But we should also remember that the weather can play a significant impact. We've seen that in Texas. We've seen that in Brazil. Um, so, yeah, like I say, it's, it's a complicated world. It always has been. And it's just, um, you know, trying to sort of manage the risks that we see around us. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, Christopher, with your equity hat on, one of the things that's, that's happening uh, right now is, um, or or that will will soon happen in some countries, is um, the unwinding of of quantitative easing, or it's scaling back. And given that we had uh, that for most of the decade and more, where QE was a feature of of the global economy, and um, equity markets performed very strongly, and certain types of equities performed very strongly, and um, that is those long duration growth type. Equities, which I know are, are an area of the market that you that you've favoured for for some time, and if we do get an unwinding, does that have implications for equity markets as a whole and um, moving lower? Um, and also, does it have implications in your view for the performance of those growth type equities? 
Yeah, well, I think it's I think that's a really important question, and it's a question about the real impact as well as the perceived impact uh, of these changes. And I think Stephen alluded to some of the mechanisms in which uh, they impact markets. We've seen that last year where this value growth rotation really happened for the first time after a very long outperformance um, uh, of uh, uh, growth stocks uh, over value stocks. Uh, it act it uh, happened in uh, the first half of the year um, uh, when there were uh, great expectations for economic recovery and it then actually uh, reversed um, uh, over the summer, um, uh, in part, I think, because of Delta and Omicron and a perception that the impact of the pandemic would be delayed, but in part because of the fundamentals uh, of the companies um, uh, that uh, came through uh, and that meant uh, that their sales, their earnings and their cash flows grew so much uh, that they became very cheap. And so I think that's a paradigm in a, a perspective of last year of what I think the future will hold as well, which there will there can be short term dislocations uh, because of these moves. Uh, the mechanism by which it happens is that um, as uh, the quantitative easing uh, base is uh, unwound, uh, that rates rise, um, uh, it's related to the inflation. Um, uh, and so therefore, a real and nominal interest rates rise uh, that uh, increases the real and the nominal discount rate we use for the the CAPM present value formula we used uh, to measure the present value of cash flows. And in the first instance, it increases that mathematical formula in people's spreadsheets. And so therefore, the present value goes down. In the second phase, and we already saw that last year, and we will certainly, in my view, see that uh, this year in terms of the strong results, the second thing that happens uh, is that um, uh, these um, the nominal uh, increase uh, in uh, inflation in companies that can grow and have pricing power gets translated into their top line. And so in the same way as the discount rate goes up, uh, the um, uh, the results go up as well, uh, and therefore um, things normalize. I think uh, during periods of transition like we're having, you can have these fluctuations between growth versus value. But I think the important thing is to look at the underlying fundamentals, and that's certainly what I think we and um, uh, other people mean by quality. Um, so companies that can um, perform during this kind of environment, and when the fundamentals come through, um, then uh, you will start to see that shifting again. So for very short-term reasons, you can have these dislocations. We've already seen it this year, uh, where some of um, uh, the uh, great quality companies uh, have been impacted. It's not just the technology companies. It's companies in particular in consumer products, um, uh, like, uh, for example, uh, L'Oreal or Estee Lauder. Uh, it's companies in luxury, like um, LVMH, although the results, again, have been so strong um, uh, that have been impacted. But what we've seen is you've had the hit on the share price. You've then had the earnings come through, and you've then had a, a normalization again and an opportunity. So uh, for us, I think volatility is an opportunity. We saw that. But I think the kind of rotation uh, that we can see uh, because of these market moves is an opportunity as well for long-term investors. Thank you. Um, Paul, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that question around rotation between value and growth is, is something that you're, you're asked about millions of times. And have been for for years, and something that you're you're thinking about to to an extent. As Christopher has mentioned, we've had uh, uh, we've had some volatility around that this year to date. But is that something that you think should mean clients are positioned profoundly differently? Oh, definitely. And and Christopher points out very clearly: without volatility, there would be no opportunity. If everything was guaranteed, we'd all be earning 1% per annum on our investments or less. 
you know, just, it just <laughs> you, you can't have one without the other. I think when you start removing that punch bowl, it does start leveling the playing field. You think if, if, if the central bank was a portfolio manager, you, you'd fire them because they're buying assets with, you know, ridiculous return, risk adjusted returns. And as they start buying bonds, yields rise, and they're suddenly Tina, if there is no alternative, it's suddenly having to change her name because suddenly there, there are you know, alternatives. Um, I think with regard to the, um, it's very easy to, to sort of say to pigeonhole growth and value. But you know, when you start thinking about, well, how do you populate, it, it becomes a bit more complicated. So I think as a portfolio manager, we, we look for growth in value stocks and value in growth stocks. So I think it kind of we avoid things which are speculative growth, i.e. it's on a promise. Uh, but equally, we're not necessarily fishing in that distressed area of value because, you know, remember, during the pandemic, a number of businesses that you know would have fallen into this value category have had to sort of issue bonds and equity to ensure their survival. So when we start looking at some of those businesses from an enterprise value, you know, optically, the price looks cheap relative to the historic average. But from a fundamental perspective, they may not look as cheap when you start doing the digging. So it's all about understanding those underlying businesses and, and trying to sort of work out how they fit in in the wider economy and whether they can you know, continue the, you know, to sustain their revenues and their margins. Uh, like I say, we still think that equities offer a compelling um, you know, investment opportunity, certainly if you're looking to combat real returns. Like I say, we're expecting inflation to dampen, but you know, you're still going to have to generate a reasonable return to compensate for increasing prices. Thank you, Paul. Um, Stephen, with your um, with your economist hat on, um, you, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about what would happen uh, whenever uh, QE uh, stopped or and or was unwound. Um, do you think the impact will be as profound as you as as many market participants think, and that its impact will be multi-year? Well, the impact on bond yields themselves directly is the first step. <clears throat> and, you know, we have a reasonable idea that this massive bond buying by central banks has cut long-term interest rates substantially. And as soon as you get an announcement, I mean, the taper tantrum going back all those years, which put bond yields up so dramatically, was useful because it was compressed into a short period. The bond market hadn't been forewarned that it was going to happen. This time it's been more gradual. But we've had this, as I said, 100 basis point rise in US mortgage rates. Yields have risen 100 basis points. And part of that's the economic recovery. And some of it's the expectation that QE will be unwind. And when the Bank of England has had the worst performing bond market as this Ukrainian situation has developed. And that, I think, is because our central bank is going to has abruptly stopped QE and has told us that as soon as base rates get much above 1%, they're going to sell their bonds. They're not reinvesting the proceeds already. So they're seeing in a direct impact on the bond market. Now, what does that mean for the economy? It differs. In the US, the mortgage system, as I've said, directly related to long-term bond yields. Our mortgage market, of course, is much shorter and although mortgage rates have gone up, they won't be affected any significant way by the Bank of England selling off its bond stock. It is affected by base rates, but even that is somewhat mitigated by the retail flows that are influencing mortgage rates. Go to Germany. They have a significant impact from long-term interest rates, 
but they're so low that have to go further before they really affect the market. So I think the impact on bond yields, you can sort of say a hundred billion here, a hundred billion there, similar effects in similar markets of similar size, but the impact on the mortgage rate and hence the economy, much less. I'm always skeptical as to whether the central bank, the Bank of England pushing down long-term interest rates in this country has any effect at all, except perverse. It makes annuity rates less attractive, so incomes are falling for retirees who still use them occasionally. And it also makes funding of pension funds more expensive. So I don't see term insurance premiums go up. So I don't think the Bank of England making an aggressive reversal of their QE will matter very much. Other countries, much more important. Thank you for that, uh, Stephen. That takes us to perhaps the uh, the, the, the question or, or topic area that's that's preoccupied, I think, everybody for for more than a, a decade, which is the question of investing for, for income. As you've all mentioned in, in your various answers to various questions, uh, we, we've had a period where, where bond yields have been very low, government bond yields have been very low and not really an income thing in many ways, uh, and where many of the best performing equities of the past decade or so haven't particularly paid much in the way of a, of a yield. But just as maybe bond yields have, have risen a little bit, and just as some of the more income-paying equities have started to perform a little better, we're greeted by much higher inflation, which obviously is keeping those yields negative in real terms. So how does one think about income in the current climate? I think maybe, Paul, I will I will come to you first on that one. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, the, the funds that I manage are all accumulation units. So I, I don't actually have to worry about generating a yield for clients. It's more about generating a total return. But I think the, you know, the concept is the same because, you know, we're still looking to generate a return, you know, long-term growth that, that is compelling and, and compelling relative to inflation. I think it's difficult or you know to go down a rabbit hole and try and say well there's one particular you know sector or asset class that combats rising inflation and you should and you you should go all guns for that because you know you could say well actually you know commodities are a good hedge against inflation but that's on the premise that the economy is growing and that there's demand for those commodities over the longer term so for us, it's really looking at um, you know opportunities that can deliver a, you know, a level of yield. You know, in alternatives that may be infrastructure or some specialist property within fixed income that could be specialist credit, uh, or more likely within equity. And as we've heard from both Stephen and Chris, there are companies out there that are able to pass on those costs in excess of what we're actually seeing. So in fact, actually, your living costs are rising at a level probably far greater than what that headline inflation rate is. I even hear that despite Peloton's woes, they've actually cancelled the, or they're now charging for delivery installation, which used to be a $250 freebie. So it's really looking for those businesses that are able to pass on those costs and focus on the total return now, if you're an income investor, clearly you'll, you'll, you'll favour those assets um, that, that pay out most of that return in terms of income. So I guess for the home bias, the UK plays that very well with our sort of more you know, income orientated assets. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Last year, the theme was very much one of ESG and you know the areas that seem to pay some of the highest levels of income are anti-ESG sectors. 
through oil and gas materials and commodities and the like. Um, but like I say, for us, it's looking at that consistency. It's all very well having a nice yield, but how sustainable is that, that level of yield and that income? Thank you for that, Paul. Um, Christopher, as an equity investor, you've had that situation. I guess you've had a, a bit of an awful choice to make uh, for much of the past decade between uh, buying things that might do well in capital gain or total return terms, for example, uh, large US technology companies, but not really having an income bit, or if you have an income mandate, having to buy income things and see that your fund uh, it, it underperforms perhaps against peers who, who don't have to worry about income. Is that something that you see changing now? Could we, heaven forfend, be in a situation where you can buy an income yielding asset that goes up in value? Well, I, I actually think it's been more like a candy store over uh, the last 10 years um, following uh, the global financial crisis. I think there's been uh, great companies and they've uh, generated uh, great returns. Um, but I think this uh, income uh, versus uh, uh, capital gains versus total return question is really important. When uh, we manage money for people through our um, uh, World Stars Global Equity Fund uh, or through separate accounts, um, and when we manage money um, in equities as well as in uh, some of the fixed income and uh, other investments that we make. Um, we're very much focused on uh, the right risk return balance. And I think the balance has very much been uh, towards capital gains and towards total returns. I think that's been because the yields have been as low as they are. And I think as we've been talking about in an in uh, environment where there is sustained inflation, I think fixed income investment is very difficult. The only thing that uh, we see there uh, is that uh, you can invest in very short dated securities and if you hold them to maturity uh, then you can benefit from those income from the income that they generate um, uh, but uh, you have to um, uh, be uh, able to look through uh, the mark to market volatility which is very difficult uh, if you're in a situation where you're invested in people uh, that have to buy and sell them uh, or you have to go out further in terms of risk or complexity um, uh, which you can do um, but uh, you have to take those into account I think in terms of the equities, um, I echo very much what Paul's been saying. There's a reason why people, um, uh, why companies uh, distribute um, uh, their cash flows, and that's because they don't have ways of reinvesting them. And they can do that through dividends or they can do that through buybacks. And what we found is that a lot of the quality companies that we invest in have been distributing the excess capital that they've generated uh, through buybacks because it's more tax efficient um, uh, from uh, uh, their uh, ultimate investor's perspective uh, if you they if people don't have to sell or if they're uh, invested through um, pension structures where they don't have to pay taxes or if they're uh, indeed endowments or charities um, uh, that don't have to pay taxes. So there's good reasons um, why share buybacks have become such a significant way of uh, returning capital and it re rewards the long-term investors uh, who stay with those companies. I think um, uh, from dividends, I think there is a correlation, unfortunately, between companies that are getting disrupted disrupted and companies that pay high dividends um, because they don't uh, feel that it's right to buy their own shares. And if they don't feel that it's right to buy their own shares, why should we? Uh, so I think it's a real issue going forward. And we have to think about a paradigm where in order to achieve the goals that we have, whether that's for savings and retirement, or whether that's for increasing the assets of endowments of charities uh, or other reasons, um, uh, that we have to look much more about total return. I think the disruption uh, of uh, these kinds of companies uh, will be with us and will only accelerate. 
Um, so I think we should be very cautious and we're very focused on finding companies that can generate total returns. Some of them, like, for example, Nestle, that's been a position for us um, uh, now for um, uh, uh, the 10 years um, uh, and longer, um, uh, is a company that still generates a dividend yield of 2.3% uh, um, while having generated a total return of 14% in Swiss francs uh, since uh, the, the early 80s. So there's great companies that offer a balance, um, but I think it's total return, uh, not income, that we have to be focused on. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, uh, what, what are your what are your uh, thoughts on that? Um, maybe 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, 5% from a, a sort of multi-asset income portfolio would not have seemed very ambitious uh, or indeed required one to take very high risk. Um, could we get get back to uh, to that situation now or will it be a case of lower for longer not merely not for interest rates but for for uh, for for yields we have to be a bit humble when it comes to long-term forecasts of interest rates or inflation given that many of the significant moves have not been anticipated i mean the odd person will have forecast a rise in inflation they always forecast a rise in inflation typically so they're like a stopped clock but for a serious forecast of big rises and big falls it's very rare that people get it right a year ahead is as far as we can see in fact clearly less than that given how surprising inflation has been both up and down so given that qualification or caveat when it comes to funds we focus on total returns as well but if you've got clients who want a fund with income and interest rates are very low and as christopher says firms are buying back their shares instead of paying dividends, then you have to be creative and innovative. One thing that suits the macro environment, as we see it, is our credit portfolios. We've gone underweight investment-grade credit, which tends to be much long, very long-term maturities in some cases. The index certainly has got very long-term and low yield in favour of high-yield which you have to adjust for the fact that they're more volatile, but they're shorter maturities, more protective, more protected, strangely enough, in this good growth, but rising interest rates and rising inflation environment. So there's something where you can actually increase your income and, in the case of the last few months, your performance as well. It gets trickier and trickier when rates get lower and lower. I'd hate to be a Japanese income portfolio manager. I think I've left the industry... 10 years ago. So it is tricky. It's not a good idea to push, push, push too far, but you can find creative ways to generate income without damaging performance too much. And if it was going to be in your portfolio anyway, it would be in a total return fund as well. Okay. Thank you for that. And thank you to Paul Craig, Portfolio Manager at Quilter, Chris Rosbach, Chief Investment Officer at J. Stern & Co, and Stephen Bell, Chief Economist at BMO Global Asset Management, for your time today. And thank you all for joining me. Do tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor Podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. 
Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.